I'm Marla Randolph, and welcome to the Great Boomer Challenge. This is podcast number one, Waking Up to White Privilege. And another term for white privilege is white advantage. I actually just learned that term this weekend, so I'm adding this little bit at the beginning. Um, I'm not being lazy by not re-recording the whole podcast. I'm just really not sure how much white advantage has gotten into the mainstream versus white privilege. So just want to let you know that um, you're welcome to interchange those terms throughout the podcast when I say white privilege, if you want to. Um, It's believed to be a broader, more gentle term. So I wanted to let you know that right now. And I've also recorded three other podcasts with interviews. So if you hear me use it in those as well, I can't remember how many times I've used it in the other interviews. But throughout, after those are over, I will do my best to interchange those whenever I can in future podcast interviews. Thanks so much. I want to cover a couple of housekeeping details before we start. My website is greatboomerchallenge.com. And while it's not ethical for me to charge... For this podcast, I am taking donations for any speaker honoraria or any expenses that I incur. So there's a spot on my webpage um, and also on um, the podcast webpage where you can make donations. And some speakers might ask for donations to be sent to a specific uh, organization. So if that's the case, I'll make sure that you know what those are in case it's not somewhere that you would like for your donation to go. You can send it somewhere else, or just put it in the general donations category. Please leave a review of this podcast. It's very important for podcasters to get reviews, so help me out by leaving one. My target audience is baby boomers, and more specifically, white baby boomers. But please hang around, no matter your age group or race. We're going to be tackling the topic of racism And I would love it if you begin to think about this topic in a way you perhaps haven't considered it before. If you aren't a white baby boomer, but you know someone born during the boomer years, such as your parents, friends, co-workers, challenge them to listen or maybe even dare them to listen. In a kind way, of course. This podcast isn't going to be an in-your-face confrontation. However, it is going to be honest and hopefully deeply challenging. I want to rouse my generation in much the same way I was by recent events. But it wasn't events alone that jostled me into a new level of awareness. It was people who dared to pose questions, provide scholarly, passionate materials, and press me to examine myself until I saw the truth. Now it's my turn to pay it forward. You see, we didn't have... Black History Month. I mean, maybe some of the later boomers did. And in our American history books, we might have had an inset on the page about George Washington Carver or Booker T. Washington. Those were the safe black people to discuss. And I do remember them, and I remember reading a little about Sacagawea, the 16-year-old Shoshone girl who helped the Lewis and Clark expedition meet their objectives. Uh, My husband says he remembers reading about Frederick Douglass and Pocahontas, but, you know, we really didn't learn about Harriet Tubman, for example. 
And we didn't even study what was happening all around us in the 60s and 70s, at least not in our classrooms. But many of us did march and protest later, and then we stopped as racism grew more subtle. That's why I'm calling this the Great Boomer Challenge. Not because I'm great, but because I want the boomers out there to prove that we can still learn from each other and pass it on. Our parents were known as the greatest generation. Let's show them that they rubbed off on us a little bit. Let's get started. Not long ago, I would have been able to list for you all the reasons I'm not racist. These are some of the things on the list I would have ticked off for you. My parents and my grandparents would have never used the N-word. They taught me that using it was wrong and taught me to be respectful and kind to everyone. My childhood imaginary friends were black twins named Sika and Saka. That certainly proves I'm not racist, right? I don't look at people of different color or ethnicity any differently. I don't believe that interracial marriage is wrong. Surely that proves I don't have any white supremacy in me, doesn't it? I didn't need to pay attention to terms such as systemic racism, white privilege, or white fragility because I wasn't a contributor to any of those problems. I would have said that racism still existed, but I would have not been able to see that I'm part of the bigger issues in America. I have some Native American blood in my ancestry, Cherokee to be exact. The trail of tears stabs my heart every time I think of that. Doesn't that prove I'm not racist? Do you have a similar list? By the way, there are serious problems in zero logic behind every statement on that list I just gave you. We won't cover those today, but we will address all of those statements over time. When it comes to what we believe about racism, I think most of us can put ourselves in one of four main camps. In reality, this would probably be more of a continuum, but for simplicity's sake, let's look at it as four categories. A. Racism did exist, but it's no longer an issue because of civil rights legislation and societal change. B. People who claim they are victims of racism just want someone to blame for their problems. C. Racism does exist, but it's not a systemic problem. There are just isolated incidents. D. Systemic racism still exists today, and we must wake up and find ways to stop it. Where do you most closely align yourself? Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I was born in 1956, almost in the middle of the baby boomer generation, which spanned from 1946 to 1964. My father grew up as a very poor farm boy, shooting rabbits and selling them in order to buy school supplies. He never went to college, but he did get a good job with Lockheed Corporation in Marietta, Georgia, right out of the Navy. He worked there for a few years and then spent the rest of his career as a letter carrier with the U.S. Postal Service. And he took great pride in his work. 
He would never have referred to himself as a mailman or a postman. There's nothing wrong with those terms, but to him, letter carrier was the proper title. His shoes were always shined, his pen was always straight on his hat, and he was crisp and tidy every day. My mother went to college for two years, which was all that was needed for a teaching certificate at the time. She was a teacher through and through, and made us laugh with stories of the mischief makers in her class, who I believe were secretly her favorites. She later let her certificate lapse and spent a number of years as a teacher's aide in the local school system. I have one brother who is nine years younger than me. We weren't poor, but we certainly weren't rich. Our income level could best be described as lower middle class. While we didn't live on the good side of town, we had a perfectly respectable three-bedroom brick ranch that we bought new in about 1964. Still, extra money was in short supply. When I was in sixth grade, I remember helping my mother fold papers for an afternoon paper route so that she could buy herself a dishwasher. My first job, along with a group of my friends, when we were 16, was on an assembly line in an unair conditioned plant, putting together embroidery kits. That summer was quite an education. Yet, in spite of not being upper middle class, I was part of a system that opened doors. I was able to have nice things and pursue opportunities. For example, I could go to a private kindergarten. I had cute plaid dresses, matching tights, and black patent leather shoes to wear every day. I got so excited when it was time to shop for school supplies each year, and I didn't have to shoot rabbits and sell them to be able to buy them. I always got what I asked for on birthdays and Christmases, within reason, so I was right there along with others of my generation when it came to getting Etch-a-Sketches, Barbie Dream Houses, Chatty Cathy's, and Easy Bake Ovens. I was smart, and it was recognized by my teachers. Often my classmates would call me teacher's pet, and I loved it. By second and third grade, I had started what would become an enviable collection of vinyl, beginning, of course, with the Beatles. I could identify with those teenagers I saw on American Bandstand, even at that young age. I had access to excellent medical care and went to a fine pediatric practice in town. We never had to worry about whether or not we had the money to go to the doctor. We were able to afford piano lessons for me for first grade all the way through 12th grade. My grandfather bought me a flute so I could be in the school band from 4th through 8th grade. The summer jobs I had, such as the one at the embroidery kit factory, weren't taken out of necessity, but so that I could have an abundance of cute clothes and shoes. My grandfather had saved and had a good retirement nest egg that he used to help pay for my college education. And I graduated from a state university with highest honors. My parents had some of the farmland my father was raised on and the house I grew up in, so my brother and I had an inheritance. Some would say that my having these opportunities was only due to my parents' hard work, work ethic, ability to save, and so forth. 
But we were advantaged in ways I couldn't see at the time. You see, there was nothing holding me or my family back. There was practically zero friction in terms of anything blocking our path. We had more opportunities open to us than black people at that time. For example, when I walked into a store with my mother, I could walk over to the records or toys by myself without one of the salespeople hovering around me to make sure I wasn't going to steal something. I don't ever remember anyone watching me closely in a store. It was easy for my parents to get a loan approved to buy our first home in the neighborhood we chose. We didn't even have to think about redlining. My school got new textbooks when we needed them. Once they were old, they were sent to the black school across town. So not only were they old and worn, I don't think Dick, Jane, and Sally in the Dick and Jane Readers were very relatable to black children. My brother wasn't ever stopped by the police for driving or walking down certain streets, a practice that happens to black men and boys over and over again and has been happening for way too many years. My parents never had to have the talk with my brother about how to behave if he were ever stopped by the police. They didn't have to drill into him what to say or not say, how to act or not act, how to walk or not walk. You want to know something? I had never even heard about the talk until about three or four years ago when I saw it addressed on a TV drama. I called a black friend afterwards and told her I'd never heard about the talk. She said, well, kudos to those writers for putting that in the script. I didn't have constant reminders I wasn't good enough. For example, I could go in the main entrance of the movie theater in town when I was a kid. During segregation, black people had to buy their tickets then go back outside, walk around the outside of the building, then climb the uncovered outside stairs along the exterior wall to the upper level, then enter the upstairs lobby, hand over their tickets, and go and sit in the balcony. They didn't even have access to the downstairs snack bar, nor did they have a snack bar of their own in the balcony lobby. That job in the embroidery kit factory, the plant was on my dad's mail route, so he had gotten to know the manager and asked him if they had any openings for the summer. They wouldn't have had seasonal jobs, so the manager clearly thought a group of white teenage girls would be good workers in order for him to be willing to take us on for only three months. And here are the biggies. I never considered whether or not the way I was being treated in a given situation, had anything to do with my skin color. Nor have I, to this day, ever. Do you hear me? Do you really, really hear what I'm saying? Do you understand the magnitude of that statement? Think about that. Is it the same for you? I really wish I could say that ten times. But I will say it once again. I never considered whether or not the way I was being treated 
in a given situation had anything to do with my skin color, nor have I to this day ever. I never really thought about the fact that I was white, not in any meaningful way. Do you understand how that in itself is white privilege? I was never called a white racial slur, and I could only think of three. Those words carry no emotional triggers for me when I hear them. I kept saying them over and over to myself, and no emotion was evoked whatsoever. I'm sure that there are situations where white people have been harmed by racial slurs, and I am not trying to make light of those situations. I'm simply saying that I believe it's rare for white people to have been harmed repeatedly and having been hurt in this way. And one of the biggest issues of all is land inheritance. It's something that so many of us take for granted. Yet very few people of color have been able to enjoy that advantage. We will be talking a lot more about this at a later time, but, but just consider that and think about what an incredible advantage that is for so many of us. All of these things I've just listed for you are part of a system that the dominant culture has in this country, and it's known as white privilege. I just mentioned it a few minutes ago, but listen, please listen. If you're white, white privilege doesn't mean you're rich or that you've asked for it, or that you've demanded it, or that you haven't had troubles in your life. In fact, you might have had a really terrible time of it. Let me define it more clearly. White privilege has nothing to do with what went on within the four walls of your home when you were growing up. So you might have been very poor. You might have suffered unspeakable abuse in your home. And I have deep empathy for you if you did. But what I'm talking about happened outside of your home, in society, as you interacted with other white people. There is a system in place that benefits you, and it benefits me. You have privilege simply based on the fact that you're white, because white is the dominant culture. You have unearned advantages similar to the ones that I've listed, that I've had and continue to have, that gave me almost zero friction. Now, I want to warn you, this is when it's very easy to become defensive and shut people out. This is when many people begin to list all the reasons they aren't racist. But just hold on before you do that. Remember, I'm a fellow boomer here. No one is saying that you knew about this system. So you can take a deep breath and stay calm. Just take a deep breath. I want to challenge you to think about the ways you've been given advantages because you're white. You might have never thought of them before. I know I hadn't. For many of you, this is a whole new concept. 
I'm asking you to hang in there with me. Take some time this week to jot down some of the ways you've been privileged because you're white. It's not going to harm you in any way to do this exercise. I think you'll be shocked, actually. However, please understand that I'm not excusing white privilege either. We'll talk more about that soon. And come back for the next podcast. Next time, maybe listen with a friend. You know, you might be asking yourself, what gives me, a 65-year-old white grandmother, the right to talk about racial justice and racism? I asked myself the same question over and over again during the time when I was listening to the small voice inside of me telling me I had to do something. There was another voice that said, you don't have any credentials. You haven't written a book. You aren't famous, for goodness sake. You're white. And then I thought, wait a minute. I have all the credentials I need. I'm a white boomer. I'm a member of that group in this country that has most of the power, makes most of the laws, runs the universities and healthcare systems, and has most of the money. So we can make a difference in this country right now while we have time left. And I know many of you already are. But if you're like I was a year ago, there were some big gaps in my understanding, and it took our kids to gently show us the way. That's what I'm here to challenge you on. Next time, we'll talk about what it's like to have friction and lack of white privilege in a white-dominated culture. Eric Gash will be my guest, so please join us. If you want to contact me, please go to greatboomerchallenge.com and you'll find an email address there. I want to give a special shout out and thanks to Joel Larsgaard, podcaster. Check him out on How to Money podcast with his best bud, Matt Altbix, on iHeartRadio. And I also want to thank Joe Randolph for his technical help. And most of all, thanks to my hubby, Steve, for his help and encouragement. Again, please spread the word about this podcast and leave a review. Thanks. I'll see you next week.